This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us is here. And now, here's your host. And the summer seminar series keeps rolling along. This is Matt Caraccio of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. And again, we are rolling with our summer seminar series where we're exploring what is called the player problem solver paradigm. Hopefully, we're taking each of you a bit closer to the game and understanding the problems and the many different facets of those problems that players face on the field play after play and I cannot wait to get this show going. I have somebody that I, I, I've talked to on social media quite often and communicated with and I had the pleasure of meeting him at the Sports Movement and Skill Conference in Minnesota when I had a chance to speak this past year and he is a senior research associate at Nebraska Athletic Performance Lab. I am joined by the one and only Mr. Ryan Hazenkamp. Ryan, welcome to the Saturday Sunday P- Football Podcast. Matt, thanks for having me, my friend. Uh, happy to be here. Well, Ryan, I'm, I'm going to get right into it because people might be listening to this and saying, you know, you're a senior research associate at the University of Nebraska's Athletic Performance Lab. Can you unpack for people kind of what that particular area of expertise is and and what types of things you do? Uh, Yeah. So basically I'm a sports scientist uh, for the university of Nebraska. Um, So at Nebraska, we have the Nebraska athletic performance lab, the NAPL we call, um, which is a sport research facility in-house in the athletic department. Um, So we have a lab in the football stadium in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where I'm at right now. And we're just catered to athletics, to the study of our athletes and the performance of our athletes. Um, so and we're a multidisciplinary lab. So we try to cover every area of sports, sports science research. So my background is more biomechanics and motor control. And then we have physiology, we have psychology, nutrition, um, engineering. So all these different fields of study under the same roof in the same department just to cater to the study of our athletes, essentially. And this is an exceptionally special type of lab. It's one of the few in the country, if not the only one that functions in this particular fashion. Is that is that a fair statement or is are there others that I'm not aware of? I mean, it seems like Nebraska has a lot of the bases covered here at this lab. Big shout out to the University of Nebraska for this one. Yeah, um, I believe so. I hate to speak for other institutions because I think the University of Oregon has something similar. Um, but in terms of facilities, I don't think anybody else really has a facility quite like we do. So other facilities, I mean, there's sports scientists on staff. I mean, it's a, it's a growing field. It's becoming a popular field with the arms race. That's, you know, college athletics. But I don't think anyone quite has a facility like we do. Yeah, and that's that's one reason why, as I look at those monogram chairs with the University of Nebraska logo in it, that I'm sitting here saying, you know, this is a place where if you're listening to this and you're thinking about potentially going into this field of of sports science, it sounds like Nebraska is going to be a very enticing uh, institution to offer those opportunities for sure. Ryan, I, let's 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 talk a little bit maybe about some of the things that you constantly deal with. And, and maybe you can help some of our listeners get a better understanding of, of some principles really about sport that I think are, are really confusing. 
I'm referring specifically to the presentation that you did at the SMSC uh, 19 uh, clinic or excuse me, conference, the idea about chaos and what chaos really is in terms of sport, where it fits, because it seems like that's a, a, a principle or an idea that people are very cavalier about throwing around. And it doesn't mean that they don't know what they're talking about, because for sure, for sure, I'm not sure if I know what I'm talking about. But I do, I do suspect that there's that we are a little bit, um, we are a little blase in the way that we throw these things around. And maybe there's more that we need to kind of understand about this idea of chaos in sports to maybe reel in our understanding of the concept and its application. Can you kind of give us an understanding of, of what we're understanding we're missing out on? Yeah. So the term chaos, I guess, depending upon which lens you view the term through terminology, it can mean one thing or another. So like just you look up, just generally speaking, the term chaos is typically defined as a state of disorder, essentially. So it kind of gets thrown around as this kind of catch all term to describe like this just complete random and madness of the situation. But in, sci- in the science, there's this, this, there's this field of science called chaos theory, which chaos kind of has a specific definition. And this is branched off into you know, mathematics and physics, which I know you're a mathematician. So yay, <laughs> I don't know how numbers. much you want to get into numbers. math. I don't yay know numbers. how much you want to get into math of all that. But in this field, and I bring this up because this chaos – this mathematical chaos in a chaos theory sense is a good description of how human movement behavior occurs. Um, so chaos in this sense is like a series of events, a state that appears to be random. But in fact, if you look upon it in closer inspection, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of order and a lot of structure to it that does not initially appear that way. Um, So the famous example is the butterfly effect. So if you have two events, say a butterfly flaps its wings in Texas, and then a tornado occurs in Nebraska, which, shout out, it's summer in Nebraska, it's tornado season. Um, So you have these two events that seem to be completely unrelated. But if you look at all the, look look closer into this detail, Maybe the little gust of wind from the flap of the wings from the butterfly adds up with another gust of wind. And eventually all those series kind of build up in a series of events and that leads to the tornado. But without the flap of the wings from the butterfly, that tornado may never happen. And that's what we call sensitivity to initial conditions. And so where future events are determined by seemingly insignificant small events in the past. Well, and, and you know what? I mean, that lens, that, that, just that that idea of the initial conditions really having an almost cascading effect like a waterfall effect you know on what happens later much later it could be the next day the next month the next year is is really fascinating and i'm wondering if we if we kind of bring this to the to the football field or to any athletic area whether it be soccer volleyball gymnastics to any particular sport, where do you think this type of theory fits in terms of the framework of our understanding of human movement? 
Where do you think, because I mean, I'm talking about problem solving in terms of players facing problems on the field. How does this chaos theory, this idea that initial conditions can lead to unexpected and greatly different effects, how does this shape my understanding of what I'm watching on Saturday and Sunday? Well, I mean, it has tremendous outcome because it, in a lot of ways, it's kind of become a theory of everything in some ways. So this theory, and we can break down the mathematical equations and we can use that to describe human movement and the randomness versus the unpredictability that occurs within human movement. So like a field goal kicker, for example, a place kicker trying to kick a game-winning field goal. Where does the randomness versus the predictability in his kick, does he, does he miss the kick, does he make the kick? There's a lot of a lot of initial conditions goes into the, the determination of that output. And that includes the pressure of the situation, the practice, and everything that led up to prepare to that moment. Um, and then just kind of the way the game itself evolves, and you think of you know coaches and their mentality, referees, and how they perceive and how they officiate the game. I mean, everything can almost be described by this theory in a lot of ways. Well, and I think that's fascinating in, in a lot of ways because I think what sometimes what uh, people that are oppositional to this line of thinking might say, well, if everything is affecting everything, then I can't measure anything. So what am I really doing here? And I'm sure as a biomechanic and biomechanist, you're kind of you're kind of always tasked probably with that type of question. Well, if everything is everything and everything's affecting everything, then what am I really gleaning or trying to glean? from some of these observations. Is there anything about a behavior? And I know that we're going to talk about this uh, also, you know, in the series as well, but I'm, I'm curious from a biomechanics standpoint, if everything is everything, then, then how can I measure anything if it's all just related? <laughs> that, that's a good point. Cause like even in biomechanics, so a lot of the tools and the instrumentation we use in biomechanics, there's going to be some inherent error to the measurements. So like one of the tools we use is motion capture cameras where we place markers on people and we use that to measure their kinematics and how they move in three-dimensional space. But even like the best technology we have, there's it's not fully 100% accurate because even the markers, there's gonna, you place it on like the superficial layer of the skin and then there's so there's some skin artifact, there's muscle artifact. It's not directly measuring what's happening at the joints, but it's a very good approximation. And even though it may not be 100% accurate or we may not be able to say everything or using, viewing the lens, everything's everything, it's pretty damn good. And at least having a little snippet of the information is better than having no information at all. No, and, and I think that's a fantastic point. And I think circling back to some of the things that you said earlier that I think are probably appropriate at this time is talking about how you're also tasked with measuring more than just the joint angles and the movements. I mean, there is other areas that your performance lab, for example, are investigating the pressure of the psychology of the situation. There are so many other factors just besides the measurement error that really seemed to be going to play. Is that a fair statement that I'm making? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I love about working here because, I mean, it's not just one field. I mean, human performance isn't just one thing or another. It's everything. 
And I feel like the field of science is moving away from just this isolated kind of silo point of view just overall. But it's not just the biomechanics. It's the biomechanics and the psychology and the physiology and every everything contributes. And we have, I mean, we're really blessed to have the facilities, but we have an amazing staff here as well with, you know, PhDs and physiology and psychology that we kind of all put our minds together to do the best we can for our athletes. So, and, and as we kind of transition this discussion from this, the, the more of the, the measurement kind of science oriented approach, as we kind of begin to look at human movement and, uh, and motor learning or motor control, um, what do you think about when you, we, I, I know a lot of the people out there, including myself, will hear terms like kinematics and kinetics, and they are thrown around equally as cavalierly <laughs> as chaos. And, um, now that we've got a little bit of a framework about chaos as being really not just random, but really kind of randomness within guardrails, so to speak, you know, what about those words like kinematics and, and kinetics? Do you, do you find that those words are either a misunderstood or B not used enough? Um, yeah, they can be misunderstood. I mean, I kind of fall into this habit. I mean, I've been studying biomechanics for about a decade, 10 years now. So like kinematics to me, is just kind of like just something in everyday usage. But, and this is kind of a challenge I face a lot because I mean, I've been studying in this field for 10 years. So these things that are kind of just secondhand knowledge to me, not to brag or anything, but trying to describe it to a coach, I go talk to a coach and he has no idea what this terminology means. So there's a lot of communication <laughs> um, yeah. that has to take place there. Um, so I apologize if I for no, 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 no. I, I think what you hit on there was a really salient point because I think a lot of the, the, the listeners out here might be coaches or practitioners, and we may in the near future be interacting with gentlemen like yourself and 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 people like yourself in your industry more frequently maybe than we care to imagine as this becomes more of let's say a prominent area of study on all levels of sport. And right. my 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 question to you is Take us through that discussion a little bit when you're talking about, you know, what you intend to hopefully bring to an athlete as a biomechanist and maybe these words like kinematics and kinetics. Like, what are you doing when you're walking into that coach for the first time? What is that discussion about what you can support them with? What does that sound like or or, or look like? Yeah. Um, so first, um, I try to use really big words to make myself sound really smart. Or smart. <laughs> so, um, well, you got the mono, you got the monogram chairs from Nebraska. I mean, that that alone. The mono, I mean, I'm sure people have monogram chairs there, but you got the monogram chairs. I mean, that 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 yeah. alone sets a standard. Yeah. And I also put a lot of books in my my office to make myself look smart. That's right. That's right. Very big, th- varying sizes too. The thin ones yeah. are the harder ones. <laughs> but in all seriousness, like when I'm in a discussion with a coach. Um, I always kind of have to understand that I'm basically support staff. I'm not the coach. You know, I'm not the one that's going to be hands-on, you know, working with the athlete. So I'm almost like an educator of educators in a way. So, and that goes back into just, there's so many theories on learning from motor learning to just, you know, school learning. Um, And a lot of, a lot of times I may bring insight that a coach is never familiar with. And sometimes 
they are very well read up on like the motor control literature. So it kind of varies coach to coach on how I would approach them. Can you, but, can you I don't mean to pause you, but I, I do want to yeah. ask you, can you give us a little bit of a synopsis when we say motor control for those of us listening that may not be familiar with the research or that area of study in general, what does that field look to kind of understand? Um, it basically looks to how, how humans control their movement patterns in the simplest terms. Regardless of sport. It's not For necessarily sure. in sport. Oh, yeah, not necessarily just sport revolt and related, but just in general, how humans move. How do we control their movement? Because it's really a difficult field to study because it's not like something you can directly measure and measure like a control mechanism. I mean, to how we can control these fine motor movements with, uh, with our fingers, with our hands. So it's a very difficult field to study. I, I actually always make the, the analogy that I feel like when we're doing evaluation of a player, it's always secondhand knowledge because there's no, there's no primary way to, yeah. really, to really understand anything. We're always ki- making conjecture, so to speak, based yeah. on what we're able to observe. Well, and this is kind of where a lot of like, um, disagreement can happen because, I mean, it's so difficult to measure and understand. So then we formulate these theories whether it be a you know dynamical system, I don't know if your audience will be familiar with these different theories, but dynamical systems theory versus the more motor control, th- the motor programming theories. So these two different theories, and then people kind of tend to subscribe to each theory, and it's like, well, my theory's right, no, my theory's right, and then they just argue to death over these different ideas, and this has been going on for a long time. Well, and I think what you said there was very fundamental, and to all of the listeners out there, including myself, it's one of those those moments where it kind of you had kind of have that aha where you realize that discrepancy is really off of how do you think people learn, and based on your answer to that question is really going to dictate a lot probably about how you view whatever you're evaluating or whatever industry within sport that you're working in, and I wonder, Ryan, when you talked about dynamical systems versus motor control. I don't think that's, I think a lot of our listeners out there are are at least familiar with the idea that dynamical systems basically says that there is rich information out in the environment and there is constraints that are being kind of used to channel, channel the behavior of a player. And there's a lot of information that we are directly kind of coming in contact with. I, I, I think some of the listeners out there are definitely familiar, but can you can you maybe pick up that where I left off? What is dynamical systems in kind of a a, a five hundred word <laughs> because articles about articles about articles are written? What is what is dynamical systems in terms of motor control? Where does that differ? What is the difference? Right. Well, dynamical systems by just the very terms, dynamical system is a system that changes over time. Um, so this is kind of opposed to the more motor program theories which view kind of control of movement as very centralized governed. So everything comes from basically the restore motor program in the brain and that controls everything within the movement. Dynamical systems kind of runs counter to that idea that everything's controlled by the brain and it takes into account, places more emphasis on more external things other than just a hierarchical control structure. So things like the environment has a large effect on the output of a movement. Things like the demands of the task itself has a demand on the um, output of the movement. And the organism itself, including the brain, has a demand on the task itself. And where do you think 
if I could just really take that, that because that's such a great kind of segue into what are the implications of that when you're working with athletes? What do you think that has done for you in terms of the way you practice your profession? Well, I mean, that could, um, I mean, that viewpoint can determine everything from how you prepare an athlete to perform in, in competition um, and your drill structure, your practice structure, what sort of drills are you utilizing? So I know um, a lot of people like make fun of like all these closed drills. So like if you view through the more motor program type of viewpoint, you'll try to do these closed drills and repeat the movement after re- uh, wrote repetition after repetition, try and strengthen that motor program. But on the other hand, if you, you're more of the dynamic systems perspective, you'll try and do more of the repetition without repetition, try and repeat the, the movement, but in different conditions. So allow for adaptability to occur within the uh, movement. So is that allowing for chaos or is that, or is that, cause there's, there's a classic, yes. there's a classic response to that discussion. Is that meaning you want chaos or is that, or is that wrong? Um, in some ways that could be right, but in a lot of ways, I mean, chaos in movement is inevitable. Right. So you're telling me there's chaos even within a closed drill, even within a closed drill. I mean, even within a closed drill, and if you try to repeat the drill after it's never going to be the same way. So even like in a closed system, like throwing darts, you're never going to hit bullseye with the dartboard every single time, even though you're trying to. So right. there's going to be fluctuations to those movements rapid that aren't going to be the same. So that, so if we kind of take that down that road of of that little silo, so to speak, in terms of, you know, repetition without repetition, as we kind of build this discussion in terms of evaluation and maybe what we're seeing on the field of play, it, it, tell me if I'm wrong, we're talking about this idea that really the thing that we need to be aware of is that the drills themselves right? They definitely have these characteristics of being, being, you know, more open or more closed. But when we start looking at the way the player is behaving on the field, what is the game itself? Is that a open system or a closed system? What is the game itself when we're watching these players? How would that fit within that world? Um, well, the game is, I mean, football, especially I view football as it's like the ultimate dynamic system. I mean, what other sport is there out there that there's, you know, 11 competitors on each side on offense and defense, plus how many, six referees, and then coaches on sideline and players on the sideline, on the bench, and fans, and then it's outdoors, so there's weather conditions and different turf conditions. So there's all these different inputs into the system, which can, again, the chaos theory, so just the smallest insignificant input can have a tremendous amount. So yeah, I absolutely view football as like the ultimate dynamic system. But, and I'm being, I'm being playing devil's advocate for everybody listening out there. So maybe somebody has this question and and we're saying this, we're saying, but wait a second, these guys are being tasked with a play call. They're running a play. It's the same play they ran in practice. So I, I I don't understand. Like they should be able to, execute it in practice, it should be exactly the same as a game, right? I mean, what are we missing as we begin to bridge the gap between practice, the game, and where those differences might be? Well, I mean, when a game occurs, there's just, you can try, you can try and control everything in practice and try and control for the perfect conditions. 
But then a game occurs, and then it's just uncontrolled. So I had a coach kind of describe that to me as much. So like, we try and control everything in the game, but then this is the term he used. He said the game is chaos and uncontrolled. And, I mean, it's kind of when, he's, when I heard that, it kind of got me thinking about how chaotic chaos theory can apply to, you know, sport like football. But so things like, you know, pressure situations, like the pressure and the anxiety of the game are things that you can't really replicate within the practice. I mean, you can try your best to, but there will be so many things that happen in a game that you can't ever really predict or replicate within practice. So then when those happens in a game, how are you going to be prepared to handle those conditions if you never experienced those in practice? And playing again that devil's advocate role, well, because there's a right, a technical model, a right way to do it. That's what I practice. There's a right way and a wrong way. How do you feel about that as a as a biomechanist when somebody says that to you? Like, well, there's a technical model for doing this, a right way and a wrong way. Is that even fair to apply to an individual? And you're talk, talking in terms of like, you know, uh, individual positions like technique or. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I'm observing a wide receiver. I'm observing sure. a quarterback. I'm observing somebody on the soccer field. You know, we've taught them technically perfectly how to execute this throw using this model. And, and we've done it in practice. And there is a right way and a wrong way. How, I mean, does that does that make your hair on the back of your neck stand up? I mean, am I, am I misunderstood? What do you? I mean, not really, and I don't fully disagree with that approach because, I mean, as a bio, the biomechanist in me is always looking for, you know, optimal movement mechanics. And we know there's, you know, physical laws of nature that, you know, there's just, just I mean, for lack of better words, bad ways to perform a movement. But then this gets into the great debate of when is a movement correct? Um, but looking at in terms of good versus bad, I almost think, I don't think that's really the right – I don't think that's the right question to ask in a lot of ways. I mean, so you may have an athlete who does not have the best mechanics, but he can still perform. I mean, you look at uh, – I'm not to trash any athletes or anything, but like how Philip Rivers throws a football, but yet he can still perform at a high level. So should we be trying to manipulate Philip Rivers, his throwing technique? to make it look prettier despite how many touchdowns he throws. So it's kind of, um, I get kind of torn on this subject a lot because I, I always view that we should be trying to optimize movement, but at the same time, the best athletes are going to be able to adapt and perform in any condition. So it's kind of, um, it's a good question. Well, and you know what, and I and I think you hit on a really two two really good things. And again, I I know I know your time is tremendously valuable. So I mean, we'll we'll kind of hit on these two points and kind of kind of wrap it up. But I mean, I still think they're two great points. Number one, you talked about optimizing movement and you know optimizing the the player's movement as a task, so to speak, in your profession. And you also you know talked about maybe the idea of. Uh, you know, being careful of, of what maybe injuries could happen if, for, if we're talking about movement being incorrect. But you talked about what is correct movement. So I'd be remiss if I didn't at least ask you those questions like, 
you know, what does it mean to optimize movement and what what is correct movement in your mind as a biomechanist with with a decade of experience who's seen a lot, read a lot, been on the highest level with the best athletes at some of the biggest stages. I'm just curious where you sit because I, I know this is a moving target. I know this is a moving target. I'm not under any, uh, you know, false pretense that this is not a discussion that isn't going to rage on for years to come. But where do you sit today in the summer of July of 2019? Where do you sit kind of on those topics in your mind based on your understanding? Um, I mean, in my mind, I view like basically every athlete can always work on their movement mechanics. So I think, um, I mean, that's just always something that an athlete can work on. In terms of optimizing movement and movement efficiency, in the biomechanical sense, these kind of have definitions for mechanical energy flows within the body. And, you know, there's certain movement patterns that may be a leakage in energy that may not be the best use of mechanical energy to perform the movement. So that's how I typically view movement efficiency and optimization of movement in my biomechanist viewpoint. What, what is a leakage? You got to give me, you got to get, you got to help me out there. Cause I've seen that. I've heard that a lot and I'm not, I'm not aware enough of what that means. I guess in a simple sense, it's a wasted movement. It's a extraneous movement that doesn't contribute to the desired movement. Um, no. So, I mean, I, I think what's, what's interesting about our discussion is when I think about the central theme of this seminar series about the problems that players face on the field and observing the problems as a way of contextualizing what seems to be very desperate, you know, types of disciplines, but yet they're all very much united. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I wonder, as I keep listening to really informed people like yourself, I wonder if it's fair to start looking more holistically at the athlete in terms of what they're doing on the field. I mean, how do you feel about that, that in general, do you think we sometimes do take too siloed of approach? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's almost human nature too in a lot of ways because, I mean, I mean, sport pro athletes are so very complex, it's so very complex, and this is almost a line that I have to tread daily on simplicity versus complexity. Um, whereas if you look at too simple, you're not capturing the whole dynamics of the system, you're not going to be able to describe or uh, treat everything that's happening. But if you get too complex, you can get lost in all the weeds and the minutia of everything. So, I mean, and I think the more we learn, the more we can grasp, the more deeper we can dive into the complexity. But I think a lot of people, they tend to just kind of look at the superficial level of sport, whether it be like evaluation or practice or drill structure. And then they just stop at the superficial level and just – this is like the movement outcome that we want, or this is like the movement outcome they distribute display on the field. And then they stop at that instead of looking deeper into that and to, okay, this is what's happening. Now, why is that happening? What's contributing to that? So to do that, I think requires to break out of those silos and start looking at all these different areas that may be contributing to it. That is so extremely well said and very poignant. He is Ryan Hazenkamp, a senior research associate at the University of Nebraska's Athletic Performance Lab. Ryan, 
I'm fairly certain as people listen to this, they're going to be drawn to you as a resource and they would love to probably learn more. How can people of that have this interest, that have this passion, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on my Twitter. Uh, <laughs> shout out to the Twitter. My tag is at RHCamp, R-H-K-A-M-P. Um, that'd probably be the best way to get a hold of me. And if you had to recommend, I don't know, one one book or article that you're currently reading that you say, listen, if you get a chance to to throw out there for for somebody to watch, to listen to, to purchase, is there anything you're currently reading on your shelves? Because I know there's a, a vast amount of material out there. So I don't think anybody will hold you accountable if you don't mention a particular book or not. Oh, is there anything out there that you've read in the past or even the present that you just kind of stands out in your mind where it's like, you know, that really just had me thinking. And if I'm catching you at a bad time, I'm going to tell you then make sure you tweet it out when we put this out there for people. Yeah. Well, one thing I'm thinking, it's not necessarily a book, but um, like blogs, online blogs from Stu McMillan are always gold in my opinion. Uh, And Sean Mishka as well. I mean, their blogs are just amazing. So, well, you found a friend in me in terms of that for sure, because I definitely would agree with that. Stu's work, Sean's work, outstanding. And I, I really, honestly, Ryan, I cannot tell you how appreciative I am knowing that these are concepts and ideas that far exceed my professional uh, preparation. It's just a joy to be able to sit down and talk about these ideas and what really the myths and the kind of the realities of what some of these ideas are meant to communicate and maybe what we perceive they should communicate. And I I really got to tell you, thank you so much for being a guest on the Saturday Sunday football podcast. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me. And for all of you out there, I got to tell you, thank you so much for spending the most precious thing you have, which is your time with us today as we kind of go through some of these ideas. And again, if this leaves your head kind of hurting, it should be hurting in a good way. Like all of these summer seminar series, we're trying to push ourselves, myself and everybody out there to say, what are we not seeing? What are we taking for granted? What are we just cavalier or in a very kind of nonchalant way, just kind of broad brush stroking over without looking into the details? I really hope this has inspired you. I know it inspired me to kind of go out there and look a little deeper. So on behalf of myself and Ryan and to everybody else at the Saturday or Sunday Football Podcast, Thank you so much for spending your time with us. And please join us next time as we take you from Saturday to Sunday.